Hi, everyone. It's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listeners. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Bari A. Williams, a tech attorney and startup advisor, currently serving as head of legal for human interest. Some of her areas of practice include emerging technology transactions, privacy and data protection, and terms of service. She's also served as an advisor to startups to some of our favorite companies, including Blavity and Afrotech, which I'm sure you guys know about. She recently gave congressional testimony on bias in AI and financial services. Now, on this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about her congressional testimony, as well as her career in tech, how she got into tech law, and about her book that was just recently released on diversity and inclusion. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, make sure to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform that you're listening to this episode. Now, let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I have Bari A. Williams. Hi, Dina. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. For my listeners who are not familiar with what you do, I want you to just take a moment and introduce yourself. Um, well, right now, thanks to coronavirus, in addition to being a full-time <laughs> lawyer, I'm also a part-time fourth grade and preschool teacher, which I wasn't betting on. Um, but I also do diversity work as well and have a book about diversity in the workplace that comes out on March 31st. Yes. And we are going to talk about that as well as your career in tech. So as you mentioned, you are a lawyer. How did you get involved in doing tech law? And let's also talk about your career a little bit through Silicon Valley. So let's start with what was your first job after you went to school? Um, I actually worked at a firm called Pillsbury and we did mostly the office was probably 75% tech transactions. So it was entity formation. It was bylaws. It was board meeting minutes. It was pretty much everything you need to essentially build your startup. But what I discovered during that process was I didn't like that part as much as I liked doing the actual transaction in terms of licensing IP mm-hmm. or doing sales contracts or figuring out how to have work for hire agreements. Like that stuff was what I found interesting as opposed to, you know, doing LLC paperwork or writing bylaws for someone's company, like the governing documents of the company that wasn't as interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so from there I went in house at a software company, which essentially predicts what's, what's interesting is it was an insurance software company that insurance underwriters use to figure out what your rates should be based on the probability of something happening. And one of those things included pandemics. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle, right? Right. From there, worked at a a couple other places that were doing kind of interesting things, some bio work, and then went to Facebook, was there for a little over two and a half years. And while I was there, I did legal work to build drones, lasers, and satellites, and also some pretty cool marketing concepts, and also created the supplier diversity program there, and 
got recruited away to go to StubHub, where I was head of biz ops for a segment of the business in North America and went to an AI incubator. And now I had legal at a fintech SaaS company. I want to unpack the whole concept of tech law. So my first question, when you were in law school, did you know that was going to be your focus or did it just something that happened over time? No, I would. So I I got into law school and I was open to pretty much anything. I, I didn't, I knew that if I wanted to do litigation work, it probably would either be around employment or um, maybe, you know, family law and, or maybe like, I loved criminal law. The okay. first I think the first two, the first or second week of law school is when Hurricane Katrina happened. And so we talked about that ad nauseum in criminal law about, you know, technically these people are looting, but is there some kind of mechanism or way in which we could argue that they aren't because they literally are stranded with no supplies and no help versus, oh, yeah, these are just criminals. And you hear all kinds of interesting opinions about that kind of thing. (laughs) And what I thought about was like, oh, well, this is really interesting. Um, And then I had a story from a girlfriend at the time she was a DA. And I remember her talking about how she was just shopping one day in a Target and a family of a man that she had put in prison basically like followed her around the store and berated her. Oh, wow. And I was like, yep, don't want to do that. (laughs) And had another friend who uh, she is a family law and divorce attorney. And mm-hmm. same thing. You see somebody out and you basically help their wife get sole custody of your kids. They're going to be pissed. So as much as those those classes were really interesting and those were actually the classes I did the best in. And I think mm-hmm. it's because they're fact based cases. So they're super interesting. But those are also the cases that you take home at night. Like you can't rest thinking about, yeah, okay, did I do the right thing? Did I I put this person in prison or did I do the right thing? I'm, you know, trying to help this man take his kids from his wife. Like, it's just, they're very personal stories attached to that. It's not just a, you know, a, a, a simple contract. It's, these are people's lives and you're helping people essentially have what could be seen as unequal ramifications. And so I spent the first year kind of going through that. And um, I interned after my first summer at a law firm and we just did litigation and I just, I didn't like it. I really just didn't like it. I really enjoyed moot court, but what they don't tell you is that, you know, for the first three years or so you're an associate in the back room doing Mm. all the research and writing of the briefs. (laughs) You're not having a law and order moment. (laughs) So (laughs) like, Oh, I don't want to do this. Um, And then the type of litigation that they were doing was not, didn't really interest me either. It was tort litigation. Like, nah, I don't want to do that. And one thing that I find interesting with tech law is you rarely, well, I have rarely come across someone who actually says that is their particular position and I'm just wondering if there are people who are listening to this podcast episode who are interested in getting into that. What advice do you have for them to get started? I would say be very methodical and intentional with what it is that you want to do, because there are different areas of it. Like you could really just hunker down and focus on patents and IP protection. 
you could be focused on actual transactions like contractual law where you're dealing with licensing IP. You could have a sole practice that has to do with um, privacy. So it really depends on what it is that you want to do. Um, And I would tell people, if you have the ability to do different internships or externships. I also did a judicial externship my second year. And that's also where I realized I didn't like litigation because you're literally preparing memos for the judge to make a decision. And as much as I like writing, I just didn't like that particular type of writing. So I would say like, sometimes it also takes you a moment to go through a couple things and try them on to see if you like it or don't. So I would say it's, it's being methodical about once you what you do and don't want. And even if it takes a couple of things that you have to try on, try them on. As soon as you realize you'll like them, take it off and <laughs> regroup. Mm. But I would say, look at the different varieties of tech law. You have, you know, platform deals, you have contractual, like regular contractual deals. You have work for hire issues. You have licensing of IP, you have patents and trademarks. It, there's so many different flavors of what it is you could be doing in tech law that people should really look at the different areas of that and see where what they think would be interesting. For me, I really like the the transactional piece, particularly around licensing IP and work for hire. And I also really like privacy because that's kind of uncharted territory right now. Everybody doesn't know what is or isn't. <laughs> what is or isn't part of privacy protection at this point. So right. it's also interesting because you get to sit and figure out as well, like what should policy be? That's another area of tech law that people don't really talk a ton about, but it's like, how do you influence policymakers around certain functions and areas? I did congressional testimony last month about bias in AI and financial services and how the lack of diversity in product ideation and testing bakes in I mean, you're, you're baking bias into code and now this is determining mm-hmm. people's credit scores. It's determining their credit worthiness. It's determining, you know, how much money, you know, you should be allotted to buy a home. It determines, you know, school admissions, like all of this stuff comes into play. And if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. Exactly. That is the greatest way to put it. And actually it's interesting because I, think that a lot of people are getting more into the policymaking side of it. So you mentioned that you went and spoke in regards to artificial intelligence. And I feel like now that we have, we have a better understanding of what the bias is and the ramifications of doing artificial intelligence. But if you could tell my listeners one or two things that we might not consider that could affect us, what would you say those things would be? Yeah. Um, I think it's to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of the issues around not just bias and AI, but a lot of the stuff is that it's made without us in mind. It's made without our participation. It's made without us testing it. And so you can see that in how inclusive a product actually is. And I've told this story before, but I sat in a product review once with a team and everyone went around the room and said how great the app was. And it was. And then I said, but how does a blind person use this? Mm. Because if I have to stare at the interface and I'm blind, clearly I can't do that. (laughs) Right. So it's like when we're thinking about who you're building something for, it's what are you building? Who are you building it for? Who are you building it with? 
And oftentimes women, you know, people of color, particularly black folks um, and people that are differently abled are not part of that process, whether that's the product ideation or that is the, the testing and implementation. So it's thinking through how do you make sure that your product should do no harm. I really wish that there was like a tech oath that people would take about products. It should be the same as, as you know, the medical field do no harm. Mm -hmm. And it's thinking through like your garbage in garbage out when it comes to AI, if you were using biased data sets as the basis for your algorithm, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to continue to get, you know, bad information and and bad results because you're using old data based off of redlining or you're using old data based off of you know information regarding the past credit history of of black people or you're using that based off of information of you know maybe median income of of black people and all of that is historically biased because right. we are always underpaid <laughs> <laughs> If you're using redlining data, we couldn't live in certain areas mm-hmm. and our, our interest scores were jacked up for what we could buy in areas that we were allowed to live in. So, I mean, it's those are things that people don't necessarily think of, but these are the things that are going to determine the outcomes for us in terms of, you know, what what's your student loan? What how much can you get for a student loan if you're if you're a student? How much can your parents get for a plus loan if they have to you know, leverage their house? Like it's ridiculous. It controls every facet of life. Right. And I feel like we have so many intelligent, vocal black people in tech. Mm -hmm. How can we get involved in making sure that these tech policies are not biased towards us or even start shaping the way that policies are coming into effect, especially at a federal level? I would say that it's very important that you know, we make sure that we're going to be vocal about these things. And I, I would say for people who are, um, maybe it's not doing congressional testimony. Maybe it's writing articles. Maybe it's having podcasts like this. Maybe it's having something where you put it in front of a lawmaker or you just call up your congressperson or you call up somebody who is on a committee that you're interested in and you give them this information. And say, hey, have you thought about the ramifications of X, Y, and Z? Well, this is why this is a problem. I think it's the more, there's strength in numbers. And so the more of us that, you know, basically rabble rouse, <laughs> the, the better it will be in terms of ensuring that we get the policy that we deserve. And it's not going to necessarily be easy, but it it does have to be something that we continuously push. And I feel like it may be something where people don't know how to navigate that space. and. Yeah, I don't think that that it has to be a hindrance. It doesn't have to be through formal channels all the time, right? Like sometimes it's it's writing an article and making sure that that goes viral. Maybe it's making sure that you have a conversation on your podcast and that goes viral and somebody hears it. Um, sometimes it's just using the tools that are at your disposal. I will say one thing for as much as I have issues around tech to a certain extent there's some of these platforms have democratized the ability to spread whatever your gospel is so <laughs> you know you know write a write a thread about something that you're really passionate about and at the lawmaker who's in charge of that committee at the council person 
or the or the council member who is uh, is the lawyer for that committee. That's how you people. I, the person who found me to do this congressional testimony found me on Twitter because I was talking about AI. So it's even when you think people aren't watching, they are. And so if you have a platform or you have something you're passionate about, at somebody. <laughs> and I like that you said that because if we do yeah. make enough noise, people are going to start to listen and take notice. And the way that things are going to change is one, if we make noise, be it using any whatever method you use for your platforms and two, just being educated and sharing the correct information. Because as we know, sometimes there is bad information floating around. Yes, if we can yes. use <laughs> if we can use our platform to share the correct information, then people will take notice and start asking us for our opinions and making sure that they hear what we're saying. So yep. I just wanted to reiterate that. Yeah, I mean, perfect example of this is Rand Paul announced that he has coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like he acted a whole fool saying he was not going to vote for a bill to help people and support them while we're all going through this as a health and economic disaster. And then his dad said the week prior that coronavirus is a hoax. And then today you're like, okay, sorry, I got it. <laughs> this is what disinformation gets you sometimes, right? It's like you end up being the person who, who unfortunately you have to prove it wrong. Like right. your, your, your whole daddy was saying that this was a hoax last week. And now you like, but I have it. Right. And the worst part of that whole situation is he didn't show any symptoms. No. So it's like, you, well, that's another you were just issue, walking. Though, right? How did you get it? You're oh, asymptomatic, sure. You're asymptomatic yep. and you claim that you have not been around anybody that was exposed. So then my question to you is one, what made you go get a test? And two, how did you meet the threshold to get the test? Because you don't meet, you literally do not meet the qualifications. Exactly. But that is, we could talk about that. Well, that's all a different day. topic for a different day. But. Right, because then we can go into the NBA players and all that, but we'll we'll leave them alone today. <laughs> Just today. Just today. I do want to switch gears, and I want to actually talk about the diversity and inclusion part of your life, because I know you're passionate about that. And you brought it up when you were talking about you were reviewing an app, and you asked, the app was good, but you asked, okay, what if someone's blind? So I want to get your take on how do you define diversity and inclusion? Um, I would say, so I, I, it's probably easier to tell you how I don't define it. Okay. <laughs> and the reason being is I don't really like the way it's kind of been remixed in the last two years or so. Mm. Um, the way I look at diversity and inclusion in tech in particular is representational diversity, meaning Black, brown, LGBTQ, differently able. I'm looking at those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that socioeconomic diversity could, is very interesting too when you think about it and juxtapose it with all of those, all of those other categories too, religion and culture as well. But what I don't like that it's been remixed into is cognitive diversity and diversity of thought, which to me is a fallback, which means, oh, okay, well, as long as these people think differently, it doesn't matter if they're, if they technically don't have diverse ethnic, racial, religious, cultural ability, sexuality, diversity. And that to me is, is a false narrative because if, if you're saying, oh, cognitive diversity, then what's stopping you from hiring six white dudes? And as long as like 
One's from a rural background. One is from a wealthy background. One went to Stanford. One went to Berkeley. One's a Republican. Okay, done, right? Because they have cognitive diversity because they're they're from they have they can think differently based off of those characteristics. But I think that the false narrative aspect of that is that representational diversity, more often than not, I would say 9.8 times out of 10 will give you cognitive diversity. It's that it's the lived experience piece of that, which is relevant and also solves for what the issue is in tech, which is underrepresentation of those groups. I, I mean, white men are not underrepresented in tech. So whether somebody is from North Dakota, versus Palo Alto, it's still not solving for the representational piece. And from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, so you said the definition has changed in the last two years, but you've been in the diversity and inclusion game a little bit longer than that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I I would say the way that I, even when I was doing this at, at Facebook, I was on the leadership team for our employee resource group, which was called Black At. And so I had the pleasure of planning a lot of our programming, which was nice. Um, And it's also nice because we had the resources for it. I understand that a lot of companies don't have, you know, the, the budget for that kind of thing. And so in addition to that, I was inspired to kind of look at, I look at diversity and I call it a four legged stool. So to me, I look at it in terms of your employees, your board members, your customers and your suppliers. And people tend to really only focus on the employee aspect of that. And that isn't the only thing you should be worried about. And so when I came to Facebook, the diversity team was, it was Maxine and one other person. So, so it it just was not, it it wasn't robust and their focus Mm -hmm. was on employees, which I totally understand. So I asked like, Hey, would you guys be open to doing a supplier diversity program? And they were like, cool, have at it. There's only two of us though. And we don't have the bandwidth because we're trying to drive these things. But there's this whole adage at Facebook that nothing at Facebook is anyone else's problem. Mm. So it's like, if you want to do it, you can do it. You just have to figure out the time. And if your, your manager or your department is, is fine with it. And mine was, so it took me two years to build it. And I was very proud of it. But the way that I even set that up was to have women, LGBTQ, ethnic minorities, uh, differently abled and uh, veterans. And we also had a geographic component, particularly for me, because I'm an Oakland native. And so I watched tech completely gentrify and change my region, Mm -hmm. especially in my hometown. And I'm very passionate about people essentially being kicked out of where they're from because the rent is too damn high. So I've cared about the geographic component that if you live within a certain mile radius of headquarters, that you, these people should also be able to participate because if not, we're just going to keep buying up blocks in East Palo Alto and displace these people. And where are they going to go? And my bigger issue around that is also when you look at the stats for entrepreneurs, women are the largest segment of entrepreneurs. And if you double click a layer on that, it's black women who are actually the largest segment of the group of women. But these people are not suppliers. And why is that? And not everybody wants to work for somebody else, but everybody does deserve the opportunity you know, to have access and opportunity. 
So why not make something like this? Exactly. And so what was your experience or your lessons learned from building that out? Um, that you're going to get a lot of pushback. <laughs> really? Even though where... it was like something that was from your company and you bought to their attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What because pushback? What did the pushback look like? Well, the pushback is you're forcing people to change and to do something that they weren't necessarily prepared to do. Right. Like if I'm already using a particular supplier and it's fine, I don't need you coming in meddling, telling me I need to change or entertain somebody else. And if that's the attitude that people are going to take, that isn't going to (laughs) work. And we already know people hate change. So, yeah. And what that. Yeah. Imagine was what that was like. But beyond the issue of change, what other lessons did you learn while standing up this DNI initiative? Um, the one thing I would implore people to do and what I learned from it is I don't lead the need for DNI initiatives with a it's it's the right thing to do. I know people say that all the time, and it is, but what I have come to learn is that you could scream that till the cows come home. People don't necessarily care about doing the right thing when there's a coin to be made. So I always lead with data-based arguments and financially based arguments. That's what I learned out of this process is that if you want somebody and you want their ear, tell them how much money they stand to gain or how much money they stand to lose if they do or don't do something. That that's that is going to get you what you're trying to get. And that's a good fact to take away, because I know there's a lot of companies and people trying to do DEI initiatives and they don't have those resources. They don't have the financial backing and they don't have direction. So I'm glad you gave them that advice. And also speaking about diversity and inclusion, you have a book coming out called Diversity in the Workplace, Eye-Opening Interviews to Jumpstart Conversations about Identity, Privilege, and Bias. So can you tell my listeners about the book and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting. So it's 25 interviews with people that fit into five different categories. So it's race, gender, uh, LGBTQ, religion and culture, and age and ability. And so the interviews run the gamut. It, they're interviews about, you know, they're, I, one of my favorite interviews is a, a woman um, who is trans. She's part of the lesbian community. And prior to that, she's a veteran from Texas and Christian. And it's like, what? <laughs> That's one person. And then there are other stories that are super interesting about how do you show up at work? And meaning, if there are certain religious or cultural dress that you wear and how do people perceive that? Um, in one case, it was a woman telling me a story of how it didn't seem, it wasn't professional. Um, there are black women I interviewed that are in the wine and spirits industry and how deeply entrenched uh, religion can be in some aspects of that in terms of, you know, some people shunning them wondering like, well, how can you be Christian and also, you know, sell bourbon and the other one sells wine. And then also dealing with that when they go to these conferences with predominantly old white men kind of looking at them askance, like, what are these black ladies doing here? So it's very interesting to listen to their stories and how they show up. Um, Morgan Debon from Blavity is one of the interviews and she talks about what it was like to be a young founder and how she came 
to to start Blavity and how she was grinding and doing it on the side until she felt comfortable enough with a point where she thought she could make the jump. It's just very interesting to to listen to these stories about how people show up at work and for the ones that are entrepreneurs, the lessons that they learned from being in corporate and being in spaces where people often didn't expect them, how that made them create the culture of their own companies. So what made you want to write this book? And especially during this time now, I mean, diversity and inclusion is a big thing. And then also, how did you choose the people that you interviewed for this book? Yeah, I wanted people that were going to have very dynamic stories. And I think the thing is, that's also, and I don't know if this is true for you, but I find it's true for most of my friends is that I don't know people who I, I, the only, I interviewed two people who fit only into one bucket in those five different buckets. Everybody else was intersectional. And to me, it's just because if you have a very dynamic life story or you're black and a woman or you're, you know, you're, you're a a man of color and you're gay, like your life story is going to be different because people prioritize different aspects of their identity situationally, which I think is fascinating. And I also think in this current climate, in terms of dealing with, we've seen a rise in hate crimes, you see a rise in people feeling emboldened to say whatever they're going to say on the internet to you. Like it's just a, it's a brave new world. And so to me, giving people these tools humanizes this experience in the sense that like you read a chapter and then there are key takeaways and they're also definitions and a glossary in terms of like, what are some of these key terms that people are using in the interviews? Like cis hetero, if you're not familiar with that, you are going to have no idea what this person is talking about or what is a, what is a white savior? What is an ally? What does allyship actually look like? And to me, I, I say allyship means like you should be able to stand up for somebody even if they're not in the room and if you're not in and of that community. That doesn't absolve you from being able to advocate for them. So it's going through all of those different things and and understanding that, you know, not all women in the workplace have the same experience. Not all black people in the workplace have the same experience. Not all differently able people have the same experience. And it's also grounded in historical data in terms of like, okay, this is when this law was passed and what was the, you know, what, how was that implemented and what effect did that have on the workforce? So it's everything from thinking through age discrimination and, you know, American Disabilities Act, which was a relatively recent, I believe that was passed in 1990, which is ridiculous. So until 1990, you could, you know, fully discriminate against people, including pregnant women. Like it's, it's baffling when you look at how current some of this stuff actually is. And it also puts other things in perspective, right? Like that's, that was Elizabeth Warren's, one of her talking points on the stump was how she got fired because she was pregnant. And that's because these laws weren't in place then. So it's, it's very interesting to look at it in the context of the Trump administration, people feeling emboldened to say and do anything, the rise of hate crimes mm-hmm. and and in, in, a, in an election year. And what are the issues that we're discussing? And some of them are these same issues, which is like bananas that you would think that at some point we would have solved these. You would think, but then like, even, <laughs> like you mentioned, like 1990 wasn't that long. It was long enough ago. But it wasn't really that long ago. 
And to think that things were just getting in place then, it's almost like it makes me think back to, well, damn, what were my parents or like grandparents mm-hmm. going through just to have this job? Mm-hmm. And they could do almost any and everything at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, you know, you you take for granted to a certain extent, like, yeah, this is hard, but it also it would be a lot harder if you, you know, if you're a, a pregnant woman in the workplace prior to 1990. Like right. you have to hide it or risk being fired or if they fire you, doesn't it doesn't matter when you think about it in the context of LGBTQ rights. There's no federal law protecting them. So it's just, you know, they're dependent upon the states that they live in that have this legislation that you can't fire or discipline someone or choose not to even hire them just because of their sexuality or their gender expression. But federally, there's no law for that. So you can do whatever. And that's just I don't know about anybody else, but that's scary to me that at in 2020, you can still do that. And that's deemed as OK. Yeah, it's perfectly fine. Right. And then you have, you know, you think about it in the context of another another section is about religion and culture. Well, you've had this whole run of cases over the last uh, the last couple of years where people's employers are are essentially either firing them or they're refusing services to people based on their, their personal religious grounds. Like, Oh, well I'm Christian. So I'm not going to make your gay wedding cake. And like, that's totally fine. Right. And we're and the sad part is people expect us to just sit here and accept it. And it's like, no, that's your choice, but we don't have to accept your behavior as okay. Right. And it's nice that people are starting to call out that behavior Everyone deserves to be safe within a society, right? Everyone deserves mm-hmm. to go out, come home, and be safe in between. Mm-hmm. If you can't even, you don't want to cook my cake because I, I of how I identify, that's not, I don't feel safe. Well, and that's, and that's the goal, right? Right. It's like they're telling you that you are not worthy of them serving you. Mm-hmm. And to me, all that is is a callback to sitting at lunch counters. It's mm-hmm. no different. True. Very true. And speaking of change, because we have mentioned coronavirus quite a few times, (laughs) I do want to ask a couple questions regarding change. Before coronavirus, it was all, you know, in regards to working from home and, oh, it depends on your company. With coronavirus, we're seeing everybody could have worked from home. Do you think this is going to change our outlook when it comes to jobs and how we work in the future? I really hope it does um, because I feel like the funny part about that is the resistance that I've seen has, I mean, tech companies and particularly the larger tech companies kind of led the wave with this first. So mm-hmm. you saw Google and Facebook do this first and full disclosure, candidly, my husband works for Google and I was initially supposed to go to London this coming week to judge a tech competition. Well, of course they like canceled that two weeks ago, (laughs) Right. but, but prior to that, but the week before they even canceled it, he told me he could, he could no longer meet me there because Google had all international travel. So they shut down stuff before the government even closed the borders. So it's it's interesting that you see a lot of forward thinking coming from these larger companies. And I think sometimes it's like a domino, right? You just need one to go first and then everybody else will follow. But 
it's interesting to me to see to a certain extent how resistant people were. And I'm, I'm almost curious if that's like a generational thing in the Mm -hmm. sense that you feel like you have to see somebody physically sitting at a desk in order to believe that they're working. And I can tell you as somebody who never sits at their desk, even when I'm in the office, (laughs) I move around because I like different scenery. Right. I have seen, I, I see and have seen across the years at different companies, many a person sitting at a desk, just like scrolling the internet. So just because they're sitting there doesn't mean they're actually being productive and working. And so it's also the inverse, right? Just because you don't see them and they're working from home doesn't mean they're not productive. If anything, I know right. for myself personally, I'm way more productive when I actually work from home because I'm not losing, you know, roughly two hours, 15 minutes, two hours, 20 minutes commuting. So that's an extra two hours of work you're getting out of me. I definitely feel that I'm like when I'm at home, cause all I have to do is, you know, you still take a shower or whatever, but you just, you're basically, I'm rolling over to my desk. Like I'm right here. Right. Same like here we go. <laughs> right. I get so much more done and it gives me the luxury of staying like working late after because I'm already where I need to be. I don't have to worry about like, oh, if I go home an hour later, it's going to be a lot of traffic. Yep. Yeah. And that's that's exactly how it is to me, too. Like, especially living in the Bay, particularly if you're someone who maybe you're a caregiver for a parent or a spouse or a child or something. I know I have to leave by a certain time because I have I have to be home by a certain time. Right. And at least in the expectation, depending on, you know, particularly whatever whatever level you are within your company, they don't it doesn't matter if if it's, you know, seven o'clock on Thursday night. Like they fully expect you to still be available to some extent. Like you're you're you may still get emails and Slack messages. So it's also a lot easier that if, you know, I don't have to worry about that five o'clock meeting because if I'm already here, I can just hop on it as opposed to either staying late and trying to figure out who's going to keep my kids until seven because that's right. how long it's going to take me to get home. And then it's like you come home and you're exasperated and you're like, oh, man, now I got to cook dinner and bathe you. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things where it feels like you're working two full-time jobs, but working from home, it it hasn't been as bad and hasn't felt as pressured except for the part that now I got to teach school. That that part, you could reopen the schools, please. Just please. <laughs> <laughs> what And then also, what about, um, I don't know if you have this at your office, but the open seating arrangement. Yes. So after coronavirus came out, you know, it was like only... After, I think so in Chicago, I think it started with only 50 people. Then it went down to 10. Then it was like, get your butt in the house. Mm-hmm. But even with the 50 people, I'm like, I know that my little corner alone is 50 people. So we can't go back. Do you yep. think they'll change that whole concept of like open seating based on what's happened with coronavirus? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I would say even, especially for like the type of work that I do and the the other type of work that goes on at at my office where we are dealing with like customer PII, I would I don't think an open office setting is, is good for that. Just in terms of like, you know, people can walk by, see what you're working on. If it's a confidential matter, like where are you supposed to go? So, um, Either there need, I would say if you want to keep the open office environment, that's totally fine. But I would say that 
offices should at least have you know some conference rooms that are not all glass some conference rooms you know they should i mean they should at least be frosted um right. some maybe you set up a bank of of cubicles so that people can go and work on certain matters in a private manner um but yeah that's that would be to me the the better suggestion yeah i i don't know i got kind of go both ways because I came up when I grew up and like right when I got out of college, everyone still had the cubicle. So, you know, you still have that aspiration of like being the corner office and all that. And then things switched to open seating. And I just kind of, I wouldn't mind going back to having a cubicle and having like my own defined space. Yeah. We'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you on that. And the reason being is I also think this is a diversity issue. Um, when we're designing spaces for people, we're not thinking about people who may be introverts. They may mm-hmm. they may have um, spatial disorientation in the sense that maybe those fluorescent lights that you have beaming down on them, maybe they have epilepsy, maybe it triggers seizures, maybe it just is the anxiety thing of being surrounded by people at all time and anybody could walk up on you at any time and ask for anything. So I think there's also a diversity aspect to even designing office space that we need to be cognizant of, you know, of their, you know, their different issues around that. Very true. Mm -hmm. I have a few more questions that I have for you before we wrap up. Speaking of the future, what do you feel like the future is in the next put a time cap of like five years? What do you feel like the future of tech will be? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, my concern is that the McKinsey report that came out, I think maybe in December or so, that specifically called out that automation, AI, robotics will phase out roughly almost 5 million jobs for, for Black folks. And it is worse for the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. Um and then I'm sure if you looked at intersectionality between women in both of those communities, it's probably even worse. Um, the reason being is that we tend to over-index in service roles. So whether that's paralegals, marketing, um, manufacturing, and like actually you know, boxing things, putting things together, we can a robot can come and replace that, an AI algorithm can come and replace that and automation can come and replace that. Like, I mean, if Amazon can have whole stores where you just walk in and basically check yourself out, I mean, what happens to those jobs? So it's thinking through how do we deal with public private partnerships to retrain people or to provide them with some type of trade in which if your job is, is going to be made redundant, at least you're prepared for something else. So that's, I would love to see more policy around that as well, because I mean, if you think coronavirus is bad in terms of like what it's doing to people economically and job loss, now add automation and AI and robotics on top of that, those unemployment numbers will be sky high. And how are you going to, and literally, how are you going to support this? Ooh, that's deep. Now, now, now you got me thinking about like, oh, what would you do when automation comes around? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it'll be here faster than than you think it will. It's really right. I mean, around it already the, like, is here. <laughs> pretty much. And yep. 
So we've talked about a lot. We've talked about your work and your book that's coming out. Again, that's coming out on March 31st. And my final question for you today is, what advice do you have for someone that's looking to move ahead and get higher with each position that they take? I would say that you have to be very mindful and methodical of what it is that you want before you pursue the move. And the reason being is that if you are very intentional about what you what it is that you want to do, then it, it will help you focus in terms of what are the type of roles and what are the type of companies you need to focus on. So mm-hmm. I loved Facebook, but I also knew that like I was never going to be a head of anything there. Um, it was just too big. <laughs> so it was great training ground. It was fantastic. Very interesting work. The majority of the people that I worked with were super cool, nice people, super, super smart people. That's mm-hmm. the other thing for me that I look at that is very important is not just the rank of the role, but how will that stretch me? Am I going to mm-hmm. learn something new? Do I get to manage a team or build out my own team? Have they ever had this function in this company? But I would just say be extremely methodical about each step in your career being a a, a block. Like it literally should be a block. At, at Facebook, they talked about it's a it's a jungle gym and like it's not a ladder. It's a it's one of those rope courses where you go across and then sometimes you go down in order to avoid something. Then you go back up and be like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like that's that isn't what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would prefer to be methodical in terms of like, how do I move up and what does that look like? And what are the skills and things that I need in order to be prepared for that? And I think that is great advice to end with. Bari, where can my listeners pick up the book? Ah, well, you will have it. It will be in bookstores on March 31st. But until then, it is available for pre-order on Amazon. I will say Amazon is still shipping in the midst of the Rona because I got a package yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, contrary to belief because at one point Amazon said they were not going to ship non-essential stuff but they're still shipping yes thank you for your time today congratulations on your book thank you and thanks for having me this was fun thanks everyone for listening to the latest episode of Black Tech Unplugged I'm your host Dina McKay and don't forget go support Bari right now by purchasing her book on Amazon or at your local bookstore And I've also added a link to the show notes in case you can't find it. But make sure you go buy her book about diversity and inclusion today. And if you haven't already, go subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this episode. If you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.